Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. This week on The Agenda, more cooperation, please, on climate, trade and health. Former European Commissioner Jose Manuel Barroso says without it, things will only get worse. Welcome to this special edition of The Agenda from the World Economic Forum in Davos, where the cost of living crisis, climate change and global growth were all in focus. Jose Manuel Barroso, now the chairman of Gavi, the vaccine alliance, outlined where he thinks global leaders should collaborate more closely on. I believe there are some global public goods that can only be achieved through cooperation. And a fragmented world will be a challenge, will be a risk, a danger for that cooperation. Just to give an example of something I'm now following very directly is global public health, the fight against pandemics. The virus does not stop at borders. The virus does not need a visa to travel. So it makes sense when it comes to fight against pandemics, and it's sure that we are going to have more pandemics in the future. It's scientifically certain, it's evolutionary certain that we are going to have more pandemics that we cooperate in spite of political differences. Another example is climate change. I mean, it's a planet. We cannot only reduce emissions in Europe, we have to reduce it all over, from China to the United States to India to Russia. So we need global cooperation for global public goods. This is important. By the way, that was the idea behind the creation of G20. I was at that time leading the European Commission, and in fact it was a European Union initiative. When there was a financial crisis, the sovereign debt crisis, we took the initiative of going to speak with the United States, with President Bush, Camp David, telling him, look, the G8 is not sufficient. At that time we had the G8. Russia was part of G8. We don't, it's not enough. We need broader cooperation. And then we created the G20 at heads of government and heads of state level. But then I've been talking to um, heads of a state of much smaller economies mm -hmm. and they said, well, it's all very well having th th these big groups, the inner circle. But talk to us. Mm -hmm. Let us be part of the conversation. That's surely what cooperation means in a fragmented world. Yeah, that's why we have the United Nations. But unfortunately, the United Nations are blocked. Look at what's happening now. The invasion of uh, Ukraine by Russia. They are, they are a veto of a permanent member of the Security Council. So the United States, unfortunately, um, sometimes cannot deliver as much as we would like to. Not because of the United Nations or, or the leadership of the United Nations, but the leadership of the countries themselves. So we need more cooperation if we want to achieve those public goods. And of course, I agree, it's not only for the big powers, it's for all the countries in the world, big, medium or small countries. You're chair of the Global Vaccines Alliance, so you're all about cooperation. What, what can the rest of the world learn from the success about how that has evolved? Uh, it is a very interesting case, in fact, uh, the Gavi, because it was created 23 years ago. The first chairman, by the way, was Nelson Mandela. I'm so proud to have now that responsibility. And uh, during the pandemic, we have seen the possibility of joining all the world almost all the world. For instance, United States and China, or Europe, we are all members of, of Gavi. And Gavi is also interesting because it's a public-private partnership. We have there the international organizations like the World Health Organization, the World Bank, UNICEF. But we also have private, like Bill Gates Foundation, 
and we have uh, pharmaceutical companies and NGOs. So I believe public-private partnership is a good thing, and I also believe that, once again, when it comes to those global public goods, we have to put aside some ideological or geopolitical differences to work for the common good. Now, you've said before that pre-pandemic, the, the world government communities, they were really ill-prepared to, to cope with something like the pandemic um, and the, the, the confluence of what we've seen, political economic crises. Do you think that's changed? Has anything been learned? Yes. Uh, I think now we are in a better position because uh, there was a wake-up call. This pandemic took so many, many lives. And besides the human suffering, also in economic terms, it was a disaster. Many of our economies were completely in lockdown. So it was, was a tragedy from an economic, social, and uh, uh, basically also health point of view. Now, there have been some initiatives going on, for instance, by the way, taken by the G20, like the creation of a fund for future pandemics. So it's now being established. So I hope that next time there will be a pandemic, because there will be more pandemics, we are better prepared than last time. Because last time we were not really prepared. Well, so you say you hope, but are there not things that are put in place beyond that? Are, do, is there not something that you can say, look, if it happened now, if it started now, we're much better Yeah, prepared. no, we are. Now there are more funds, for instance, than before. We were able, for instance, as Gavi, a small organization, to raise 20 billion US dollars, which is amazing. So, and the science has made a big progress. Look how quick it was, it was amazing. The scientific capability, how quickly we were able to develop new vaccines and new vaccines of a new type that are really very effective. So I think now we are better prepared, but, but and I want to be prudent, there is still work to be done. And there is always a risk. In politics, there is a very, I mean, the, the attention time span is very reduced. The people focus when, when it's prime news, but then there is a, sometimes a fatigue. And so precisely one of the roles we see ourselves as Gavi doing just today in a meeting here at Davos was asking the, the current presences and the future presences of G7 and the G20 to keep it very high in the agenda. Because now in many areas people think, oh, it's behind us, the pandemic. It's not yet completely behind us, not yet. But so let's keep the work and let's be ready for the next uh, challenge of this type. So it's critical then to, to foster trust, cooperation and resilience, in, in, in which case where, where the leaders begin to start to try and build that social cohesion beyond just talking about it at forums like this. Yes, I believe this is very important. That's why I welcome all, let's say, steps towards some more cooperation. Look, but I have to tell you, after many years in politics, that I'm no longer naive. I, I believe there are different interests and the geopolitical frictions, let's be honest, they are there and I don't think that there will be a miracle, they will be disappearing. What, but what I think it's realistic to ask, to demand from the most important powers in the world is that at least for some issues they cooperate. Namely, as I said, fight climate change. It's impossible to do it only one or two areas of the world. We have to do it together. It's, we are a planet. A globe, that's why the word globalization is important. And uh, to fight the pandemic as well, and other, other public goods, for instance, financial stability, um, I mean, the fight against terrorism, 
there are areas where, in spite of all the differences, because these differences are there and we should not uh, fool ourselves, they will not disappear magically. But in spite of those differences, it will be important that, for instance, the United States and China and Europe uh, cooperate in some of these issues. That's what I wanted to ask you about, where global relations with China fits into this picture. Look, uh, let's be frank and honest, the situation now is more difficult than some time ago. I've been going to China for many, many, many years. Uh, I was foreign minister and I was negotiating with China uh, the handover of Macau. Macau was a territory and a Portuguese administration that was given back to China in 99, two years after Hong Kong. So since then I've been working very closely with China, also as president of the European Commission. Today the level of trust between, let's say, the United States and China, it's very much below what it was before. That's quite clear. So I hope that there will be sufficient wisdom on both sides to avoid um, a situation that could become detrimental, not only for world peace, but also for global prosperity. Because I believe there are possibilities of uh, uh, prosperity if we keep, for instance, trade open. I think trade, basically speaking, is a good thing. I mean, the flux of, 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 of goods, of, of capital, of services, and of people. And there are other tendency trends of chauvinism, nationalism, protectionism, that I believe are negative. So when you hear about meetings like we've had um, on the fringes um, of the World Economic Forum, for example, between Chinese Vice Premier Liu He and the US um, Treasury's Janet Yellen, are you encouraged by that or do you just think, oh, it's just a show? Uh, I have to check that. I'm not yet sufficiently informed about exactly what was the Well, they said that the conversation was frank. They said you know, it was collaborative. It's always better people to speak than to... <laughs> it's better that people speak than to don't speak. I'm in favour of dialogue, even when there is a big conflict. I think it's always helpful to keep doors open and the communication flow. I feel there's a but coming here. Yeah, at the same time, I'm seeing the facts, and the facts are much more tension and measures, uh, uh, and there is a going on, there, there are more and more appeals for protectionism uh, in many parts of the world. I'm not now going to, to make a kind of a blame game, I don't want to go on that matter now, but it's quite clear that we are seeing now more, more trends for protectionism globally, that's quite clear. And uh, uh, this was aggravated by the invasion of, of Ukraine by Russia, very strongly, very strongly, um, and in Europe as well. And the pandemic also has highlighted some of the vaccine nationalism. So there is always this, let's say, struggle between flux and friction. The flux of goods, of capital, of, uh, of um, investment, of ideas, of people, flux, and there is friction, the friction of narrow nationalism, protectionism, and at the end, war. And what we are seeing now in the center of Europe is a war. And of course, that changes the international climate fundamentally. Because when it's war, people, they think about conflict above all. Well, you brought it up, protectionism. And so what's your take um, on issues like the US Inflation Reduction Act? and, and it's Chips and Science Act. I mean, is that simply protectionism? How do you think Europe and the rest of the world should react? I'm not going to speak about one country because it could be seen unbalanced. What I'm telling you is there are now trends for 
protectionism globally. And uh, uh, I believe free trade is better than protectionism. <laughs> You're going to leave it at that? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Look, as far back as 2005, you said that China's development and growth was going to be really important for, for the global economy and should be regarded as an opportunity rather than a threat. Do, do you still think that? Do you think that others heard that call? I think, I think yes, I think the, the growth of China, by the way, it is one of the most important, if not the most important ever in mankind history, uh, of um, spectacular growth in a relatively short period, was first of all good for Chinese people, because hundreds of millions of people were freeing themselves from poverty, so that's good. When, when such a big part of mankind uh, gets in a better position. And also for the global economy, it is good. The question now is how to manage that in a way that is perceived as good for the rest of the world. And unfortunately, in the recent times, we are seeing more geopolitical friction, namely between the United States and China. And so the question is how to make global growth not a threat to others. And this requires political leadership and wisdom. And that's where we are now. And frankly, I'm not very optimistic. Uh, I see that the, the appeals for tension today are stronger. I don't want to put the blame on A or B, but I'm just seeing a fact. The fact is that we see more tension today. And I know that you're not the biggest fan of events like this, where there's lots of running around and lots of small conversations happening. But aren't you getting a sense that when you get past the headlines of, oh, you know, climate change, cost of living crisis, energy crisis, global recession, aren't you hearing some calm and measured conversations and maybe feeling that there is an impetus? To change? There are, there are conversations going on and that's good once again, but frankly, uh, there is a war going on, a terrible war in the center of Europe and we are seeing people that are supporting one side and others supporting the other side. So I cannot uh, pretend that things are going well when they are not going well. So it's of course good that people keep on, well, keep on discussing these matters. Now, I would like to give you <laughs> more optimistic view, but I cannot be optimistic in this situation. I think the war is going to get worse, and I think the cleavages are going to get deeper. That's my assessment. Still to come on the agenda, more of my interview with Jose Manuel Barroso, who said that China opening up can only be good news for global growth. Find out what the whole world is thinking in the agenda. Welcome back to the Agenda at the World Economic Forum. Let's hear more from Jose Manuel Barroso on the global economic picture and how China opening up is going to help recovery happen faster. I think if China now opens up uh, the economy, of course, it's helpful for a global economy because China is such an important partner of the global economy, that's certainly good. But on itself, this will not solve the issues, the geopolitical conflicts on itself. It's good for global growth, by the way, because we expect China to grow this year more than other parts of the world, so that's good for, to promote for us. For Europe it's good, because Europe and, and, and China have a very important trade relationship, certainly, but that does not mean 
that on itself it solves the geopolitical issues. It doesn't solve those issues, but you also said it's important to, to start small and have cooperation on some issues. Yes. So you know, the, the EU-China investment deal, that was ratified by, by EU members, blocked by Parliament. I mean, are, are there alternative routes, do you think, to secure some of the benefits of that agreement, especially if it's going to have those other, um, maybe unintended, but helpful But you know events? what happened there? There was because of political differences, very serious political differences. Exactly, that you are making my point. Making Europe point. wanted, it was myself who launched that. It was, it was myself, President of the European Commission, we launched the uh, negotiations for uh, investment partnership between China and, uh, and, and the European Union. It was in 2014. It was my last year as a commission. So I'm in favor of that. But afterwards, for political problems, very serious, on human rights and other issues, there was no possible progress because there were sanctions and counter sanctions. I mean, no, not technically sanctions, but in fact it was some kind of sanctions. And now we have that blocked. So that's why I say, on itself, the economic relationship is not enough to solve the political problems. Let's talk energy now. I wonder what your outlook is for, for the energy market. You know, soaring prices have really been a drag on Europe, haven't they? Mm -hmm. Yes, but uh, nevertheless, uh, uh, Europe can live with that. Yeah. <laughs> if you remember some months ago, I remember people saying that Europe was going to freeze, that there would be no enough gas. I mean, Europe is surviving perfectly. By the way, there was 60% of dependence of Russian gas, now it's less than 5%, or 10% to be less than 5%. So Europe has resources to overcome these difficulties. But huge subsidies being, being paid out. Someone's going to have to stump up and pay the bill further down the line. We've got a cost of living crisis. Yes. So can we really handle it? Yes, we can. We have to. I mean, when people have to, they find a solution. But of course, we we'll prefer not to have it. But it was this crisis was not created by Europe. This crisis was created by the invasion of a European country by Russia. But in terms of energy dependency and energy security, did it not just accelerate maybe problems that were lurking on the sidelines? Yeah, I mean, uh, Europe could be more um, autonomous before. In fact, my commission, we were making that appeal for a long time. Some countries did not diversify sufficiently, for instance, in terms of renewables, but others are doing it. Some countries are, my, my country was importing zero from Russia, for instance. So, so, but others were importing more than 60 or 80% from their gas from Russia. They were very dependent. It's a mistake. We cannot be so dependent. We have to diversify as a way of, of autonomy. So that was what happened. And I think that this is the lesson. And this is why, precisely, once again, coming to our basic point, why we are going to see these protectionism trends is because people, I mean countries, have less confidence in, on others. And so they want to prepare. They are bringing back to closer their supply, supply um, chains. That's what Europe is also doing. Europe does not want to be so dependent on gas from different uh, distant parts of they want. That's why it's part So are you saying that when... But the other countries are doing the same. I mean, China is doing the same. China is trying to rely much more on its own strengths. United are doing the same. And this is the trend today. We should not fool ourselves. And so it will be good if in spite of this we keep lines of communication open, that we work constructive in some areas. But uh, I think it will be a mistake if we pretend that everything is perfect, because it's not. And the trend, I tell you, the trend will be 
more and more of onshoring supply chains is already happening. And, and it's going to, to uh, increase this trend. And some would say, well, that's clean, greener, that's cleaner, that's reducing our carbon footprint in terms of transport and, and so forth. Do you think that sustainability goals are, are, are genuine or that a lot of this is greenwashing? No, I think the goals are legitimate and I believe there is an effort going on, but not sufficient. Not sufficient. Namely from the side of Europe is doing more than the others. To be honest, Europe is doing much more. But uh, others, we need, for instance, others have not yet accepted binding agreements. They keep saying some aspirational goals, it's good, some promises, it's good, but it's not sufficient. But when so many businesses are struggling to, to, to keep afloat, what, why, should, why should businesses um, have sustainable goals and green targets? Why, why should that be front and centre? And give, why should they give headspace to it when they're trying to pay, their, pay wages to their staff and to keep their businesses going? I mean, either we believe that <clears throat> there is climate change man-made and that is a real threat to the survival of our planet or the quality of life, or we don't. I mean, if we believe that's a real challenge, and I believe the basic information we have from science is that there is a phenomenon called climate change and that we have to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions, so I think it's a responsibility of everyone. And the governments are the first that should, for instance, implement some targets that should be binding. Uh, but ideally, there should be a global agreement for that. There was the Paris Agreement. Unfortunately, there were already some countries deviating from it, and now they come back and so on. But the reality is that uh, we need that. So if we believe it's an existential threat to our planet and the quality of life in our planet, so it's, uh, I mean, of course, economically, there is, a, there is a cost. The transition has a cost. We, don't pre we should not pretend there is not a cost. But at the end, an example, renewables. Renewables, now it's becoming less expensive. At the beginning, it was much more expensive. But it's much better to have renewables that are not harmful for our planet. And by the way, in terms of energy security, they are indigenous, they are here. We are not dependent on gas coming from some problematic places. So it's better to do it. So, so it's, it's a wise tick. decision to do it. That's another tick. So are you saying that climate change, climate action, that is somewhere where there could be more global cooperation? I think it should be more global cooperation. Um, but I think there has been some cooperation. For instance, that's a matter we have been discussing with, with China. And I believe China is committed to this agenda. That's good. The United States now, some of the measures they are taking, they are justifying them as to support their green transition. Okay. From that point of view, it's good. So, but Europe is responsible for 8% of the global emissions. So even if Europe tomorrow stops completely emission, that will not solve the problem. We need China, we need United States, we need India, we need others to do their part of the job. Let me ask you about China's carbon goals and plans for this swift move from its carbon peak to peak to carbon neutrality. I mean, some are saying it's not enough. Um, China said, look, you know, we've got to be realistic and have that longer-term view. I mean, how, how would you read that? You know, Xi Jinping thinks that it, it, that seems to be driving green development. While I believe that China is sincere in its commitments uh, in terms of uh, understanding the problem and also making an effort to fight climate change, I think this is sincere and very important because without China we cannot reach the goals, that's obvious. I would welcome China to be more precise accepting binding, binding uh, targets.
So you've already said that you expect in terms of geopolitics that you, you think things are going to get worse. So you know, we do talk a lot about big ideas, challenges, opportunities, but really it's all about people, isn't it? So what more would you like to see in terms of investing in people, in education, in healthcare, in technology? Yes, it's about people and that should be the goal of all our systems, political systems. But that also, maybe we have some differences. For me, politics, uh, governments, states, parties are instrumental. What counts is people. And people, I mean a man, a woman, or a child, are not the other way. There are people who believe that their state, their country is above all, or their party is above all. I think this is a fundamental mistake. What is important, we are here to serve the people. A person, a concrete person, not mankind in general. I think my mother so it's been an absolute treat speaking to you. It's Thank you very pleasure. much. Thank, Thank you. you. My Thank pleasure. You. Coming up on a future agenda, reglobalization and resilience. Will they be the buzzwords of global economic growth in 2023? But for now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all of the Agenda team here in Davos, goodbye.